This is the Learning to Lead podcast, episode number 96. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 96 of the Learning to Lead podcast. We are inching closer and closer to 100 episodes, which is kind of crazy, but really exciting for me. Uh, my name is Doug Smith, and I'm the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development company devoted to helping you become the best leader that you can be. If you're new to this podcast, we're committed to bringing you three episodes every single month to help you grow your leadership skills. One will be a talk from our leadership breakfast, which we host and bring in the best leaders we can find. One's an interview with a high-level leader, and one will be a leadership lesson by me. If you have been listening to the podcast for a while and you enjoy it, I would really personally appreciate it if you would subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you use to listen to this and leave a rating and review. It takes about two minutes, but that really, really would help us out. So I'd appreciate that. Um, this episode is from our interview series, but before I introduce Sean, who I interviewed, I just want to take a minute and thank our sponsors, Bab Inc. They are an independent insurance broker, third-party administrator, and consulting firm in Pennsylvania and all across the country. They host our monthly leadership breakfast. They have one of the most beautiful buildings in Pittsburgh. If you haven't been out to a breakfast, make sure you come. Uh, it's worth it just to see their building, uh, but hopefully the value we bring with the speakers as well. But we're just so grateful for them. If you have any insurance needs or your company does, please go to babbins.com. That's B-A-B-B-I-N-S dot com. This episode comes to you from our interview series in which I interview great leaders and try to extract their best leadership practices. In this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Sean Amirati, and Sean is an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and professor. Uh, he's built and sold his own businesses, and now he spends his time helping others grow theirs. And one of his companies was actually acquired by LinkedIn, uh, which is pretty cool. And he's also a professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon. And we actually broke this interview into two episodes. In this episode, we're going to talk about Sean's new book. He wrote a book that's coming out the day we released this episode called The Science of Growth, How Facebook Beat Friendster and Nine Other Startups Left the Rest in the Dust. And I absolutely love, love, love that title. Um, and I got to read an advanced copy of the book. And let me tell you just very simply what I loved about this book um, and what I love about Sean. One, I love this book that it's backed up by research. There's data to back up everything that the book talks about. Two, is Sean's not an author who's just talking about theory. He's actually done it. He's built and uh, sold three companies companies of his own. And uh, so he's actually done it. And then three, it gives you an action plan for your business. It actually gives you steps that are really practical that you can actually take. And so uh, I really encourage you to get a copy of the book after listening to this. Uh, I'll include links uh, to buy his book on the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 96. And you'll be able to find links to connect with Sean, get his new book, and uh, and everything else you want to know about Sean. And so uh, as I mentioned, we did split this podcast into two episodes. And so uh, we continue our conversation about entrepreneurship and leadership in episode number 97. But this episode specifically just focuses on Sean's book. And just exciting news, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, we're hosting a Pirates game and tailgate with Sean on Monday, June 20th, 2016, and he's going to be giving away 100 copies of his book and giving a talk on it. We're going to have free Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and then we're going to go over and watch the Pirates game. And so, uh, really excited for this event. The event's sponsored by the Pittsburgh Kids Foundation. Tickets are 10 bucks and you can get them at l3leadership.org forward slash pirates. And we would love to see you there and you'll get an opportunity to meet Sean as well. So that being said, let's jump right into the interview. Enjoy it. And I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. Sean, thank you so much for being willing to do this interview. And why don't we just start off with you just telling us about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. So, uh, do a number of different things all around the um, framework of trying to help people start and grow businesses and, and more maybe start and grow different innovative projects. So 
uh, on the probably closest in, most uh, close relationship. That means investing in their startups and, and often joining their boards and, and helping them figure out how to grow those businesses. That's certainly the, the uh, most significant job in terms of hours a week. Um, and I do that uh, through a firm called Birchmere Ventures uh, here in Pittsburgh. I also uh, teach at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, so sort of the next level out. And it's um, you know, a much less interactive than investing in a company, but still a relatively small setting. Um, so teach a variety of different entrepreneurship courses in different graduate schools across CMU. Uh, so that includes um, both the business school and then working with different um, engineering and more technical grad students as well. And then um, uh, have started doing some writing and speaking as well. I also have a book coming out soon and, and a number of things um, uh, on that front. So kind of all of these things, though, to me, um, go back to this idea of helping people be more entrepreneurial, helping people create. Um, and one of the things that I believe is that everybody wants to do that. And so it's sort of really great to be able to help people uh, pursue that and support them in the pursuit of those things. Yeah. Can you give us some context on your background? What qualifies you to do that? You know, did the sure. CMU just call you randomly and just think, Hey, you'd be great. <laughs> uh, well, they might say it was random, but, um, <laughs> but, but no. So, uh, before, before joining Birchmere and before teaching at Carnegie Mellon, if you go all the way back, I actually was a grad student at Carnegie Mellon, um, and then left Carnegie Mellon to do a number of, uh, startups, did three of them. Uh, the first was called Peak Strategy, which helped traders on Wall Street uh, build and refine their trading models. Uh, the second was, from a technology perspective, very similar, although completely different use case, which is helping media companies predict the right content to deliver to their users. So if you think about you know, going from, is a stock price going to go up or down, to is an article going to be clicked on or ignored, uh, those were the first two businesses. And then the third startup that I did was a company called Read Right, uh, which was a media publishing business, uh, which I did not found, but I did join uh, really early days there and help them grow it into sort of a modern media business that ultimately we sold to a, a private equity uh, roll-up called Say Media. So I uh, did three of those. And, and as I was wrapping up my time at Say, I had gone back to Carnegie Mellon and was doing some teaching in the entrepreneurship program uh, and uh, really, really enjoying that. And as I was figuring out what to do in a more full-time capacity after selling Read Right to Say, reconnected with uh, now my partners at Birchmere and and sort of pivoted from doing startups myself as my major occupation to helping other people do it. That's great. Well, let's just jump right into to your book and then I'll ask you more personal questions uh, toward right. the end of the interview. Uh, but you wrote a book called The Science of Growth. Yeah. Yep. How, it's how face, I love the tagline, how Facebook beat Friendster and beat nine other startups and left the rest in the dust. Um, or how nine other, yeah. But uh, man, I just love it. So just tell us, what's the book about and why do you write it? Yeah, so the book is actually broadly based on some courses that I've been teaching at CMU. So I started teaching at CMU, teaching uh, broadly the lean startup methodology. So this is a, a well-known methodology that a lot of entrepreneurs use to uh, iterate and go from um, what's often called in the, the industry kind of idea to product market fit. And the idea here is that at the early stages of a startup, there are a number of things that are destructive, but the two most important things are not achieving what, what is often called product market fit, which is being in a good market with a product that really satisfies the needs of that customer base or that market. Uh, so we, there's, and there's a, a number of really good techniques to do that. And we have a, a, a really great class at Carnegie Mellon called Lean Entrepreneurship, 
which really helps entrepreneurs go from their idea to this point of product market fit. And we walk them through different exercises and different techniques to let them figure that out. And one of the key concepts in, in the Lean Startup methodology is that all feedback you get from customers is a gift, right? You want to get out there and you want to get, you want to go talk to customers and learn what they really care about. And in many ways, teaching my ultimate customer are those students, right? And so I was walking out of class uh, with a student and he said to me, you know, this was a really great class and he was, he was super complimentary and that was, was really, really kind of him. Uh, he had been one of those students, um, Maybe maybe some people in your audience were this student in school. You know, he's the guy who always asked the difficult question and sort of <laughs> took us off of took us off the train of thought of the the lecture of the night. And the points were always interesting and smart, but but maybe not exactly where we were trying to head. And so he was being super nice to me and and really complimentary, uh, which felt a little off topic for him. And he said, and he's as he he sort of rallied to the crescendo. He goes, you know, this is actually the most valuable graduate course I've taken at CMU. And I was like, wow, that is that is amazing. Like the nice of you. And I'm thinking like most students would say that to get a good grade, but you know, I don't think this guy would even see the cause and effect there. So I'm like, wow, this is real, real great feedback. And he goes, but, and I was like, okay, this is more what I'm <laughs> expecting. And he goes, but it's a total waste of time. And I was like, well, that's a juxtaposition. I remind, said to myself, well, remember all feedback's a gift. And so I said, well, tell me more about why I wasted your time thinking, you know, I could be home with my kids. There's a lot of things I could do other than uh, teach this course. And so, you know, really wanted to understand uh, his feedback and his thoughts on that. And he said to me, you know, the, your whole course is idea to product market fit, which is really important for startups. But for a lot of us, the real challenge is product market fit to scale, because we're not actually contemplating go work for Google or do a startup, which is basically the choice that I set up at the beginning of the Lean Entrepreneurship course. He said, what we're really choosing is join Google or join you know, a company like maybe No Wait here in Pittsburgh that's that's rapidly growing, but still in the early days of of their development relative to a company like Google. And he said, you know, what we really need to know is how do you go from product market fit to scale? And the more I thought about that feedback and the more I thought about that question, I just realized that it's, you know, just like we say in class, all feedback is a gift. It was, it was a really great piece of feedback to me. And so I ended up thinking, okay, well, Let's create a second course that kind of complements lean entrepreneurship, all about this second phase of building our businesses. And as I, uh, as I started to f- try to find a book similar to Eric Reese's Lean Startup to kind of anchor the text for that course, couldn't find that. So I actually had some grad students start to build case studies. And this is where you get to the Facebook Friendster and the nine other case studies referenced in your tagline. What we did is we took pairs of companies that basically had similar products in a similar market at about the same time, or what you might broadly consider in the broadest sense of the word product market fit, and started looking at why do some take off and others don't. And as we built these case studies out, uh, not surprisingly, for those of you who've who've done kind of case-based research like this, you end up starting to see these common patterns that emerge. And so the book is really the output of those case studies, which were first turned turned into a course uh, here on campus, and then uh, more recently packaged up as a, as a book for people who may not be able to come to Carnegie Mellon to still get the same experience. Yeah. And before we jump into a little bit of the meat of the book, um, just for people listening to this, talk, can you talk about uh, how they can get it 
I know it comes out on April 26th, but just give people... Yeah, so you can get it at, at any bookstore you want. Um, it'd also be on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the the CEO reads, all the sort of places that people buy buy books. It also is on Audible, so if you want to listen to it instead of uh, read it, that will be an option for you as well. That's great, and I'll include links to all of that on the, the awesome. show notes as well. So you, you broke the book into three sections. Uh, can you give us an overview of each uh, and, and what they're about? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are these, these sort of three phases that we look at a startup going through. And the first are what we call prerequisites. And the idea here is just like you can't do calculus till you have algebra, you really can't focus on scaling your business till you've satisfied some of these basic core principles, these prerequisites. And so the first third of the book really looks at how do you know, first of all, what are these prerequisites? But equally important, how do you know if you've achieved them or not so that you know if it's the right use of your energy and effort to go focus on scaling it up. Then the second third of the book are what we call these catalyzing events. And the idea here is that once you've satisfied these prerequisites, the next key challenge that businesses go through is getting uh, a lot of awareness. One of the things that I believe to my core about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs ultimately are people who make the world the way the world ought to be. Um, And I think this is when when it comes back to like people want to be entrepreneurs, like this to me is just a fun foundational truth of why people want to do that. We want to make the world that way. And so uh, the interesting thing is it really is the catalyzing events, though, is that it often takes the world some time to catch up with your vision, right? And these catalyzing events are techniques you can use to, once you satisfy the prerequisites, rapidly accelerate the awareness about your given product or service. And then finally, the, the third portion of the book looks at, okay, once you've started to experience this rapid growth, what are the foundational things you need to do to continue to maintain and sustain that growth for the long haul? And in each of these sections, we try to highlight specific best practices to help you think through that phase of your company's growth. That's great. I love, uh, I have some questions about each section of the book, uh, just that, that I had from reading it myself, and I loved it. Um, number one is, I love your definition, entrepreneurs create the world we ought to, they think we ought to live in. And yep. my question to you is, can anyone be an entrepreneur? Uh, can anyone with an idea take it and launch it and actually see it scale? Yeah, so, so I do believe anybody, I, not only do I believe anybody can be an entrepreneur, but I think it's maybe even more profound is, I think most people, whether they, whether they process this or not, they really want to be entrepreneurial. Now, that may not mean that they want to be the guy sleeping under their desk and taking the financial risk that, that high-growth um, entrepreneurs, you know, the, the software entrepreneurs coming out of Carnegie Mellon or the robotics engineers coming out of Carnegie Mellon who are you know, living on ramen noodles and with four roommates and that kind of thing. That, that may not be what they want to do. But I think people really want to make the world the way it ought to be. And, and I think, Doug, actually, the first time I think you and I met each other was um, as part of the Carnegie Bosch Institute um, work. And, and it's been interesting. That's a, an executive education program here at CMU. And it's, that's an interesting program for me because it's given me a lens into a different type of, or a couple of different types of entrepreneurs. So uh, one are, are folks like yourself who I'd say are doing entrepreneurial things inside nonprofits and, and, and organizations that are, um, that are trying to be innovative in their own way, but might have different incentives than a, than a uh, for-profit enterprise might be. The other is large companies. And uh, one of the things that's been fascinating about the stuff I've been doing at Carnegie Bosch Institute is you meet these executives, these rising stars at industrial companies, and you realize that they really 
are interested in doing the same thing that you know these that these students are. They want to create new products and services to allow them to grow faster than GDP. You know, the reality is if you're a hundred year old industrial company and uh, you grow at the same rate that um, that GDP does, you know, maybe plus or minus whatever happens with with fuel costs or whatever, like that's just not a desirable future for these guys, right? And so they're very interested in this from a financial perspective. But similarly, they want to build products and services that make people's lives better too, because I think this, you have this, this deep desire to, to do this. Um, and I think uh, whether you fully understand why that is or not, is, I've yet to meet someone who's like, no, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really want to make the world the way it is. Yeah. Do you, in your opinion, do you ever run into, I'm sure you get pitched all the time, people who, who not, aren't necessarily built to be the founder but they should just join a team. They have entrepreneurial skills, but they should just be part of the launch team. Uh, do you advise people to go that way more than being the guy? Do you run into that? Yeah, absolutely. What, so, so people pitching us, and just in general, right? I think it's important. First of all, I think founder is an interesting uh, loaded word. There's a number of loaded words in entrepreneurship these days. And I think one of them is certainly founder, right? Because it's, it's really difficult. And we talk about this a little bit in the book, but it's really difficult to, to know where you draw the line on who is and who is not a founder of a given organization. Um, and, but if you, if you were sort of going to go back to the people who are there day one, which is one way you could define it, right? I think generally the skills you need at that point may not map to the way you're wired. It doesn't mean you can't be part of the group that makes the organization or the, the startup realize the, the vision that they have. But you basically need um, what we often say at Carnegie Mellon, you need a hacker and a hustler and a designer, right? Someone who, who can, the hacker, you know, just by sort of loose terminology, someone who makes sure that what customers want get, gets built. The hustler, right, this is the person who goes out and talks to customers and, and figures out what they want, right? And the designer is sort of glue between those two groups. And I would say five years ago, we wouldn't talk about founding teams having designers, but as uh, well-designed technology has become sort of ubiquitous and table stakes in a lot of these startups. It's just really important to have that, that uh, person on your team day one as you're getting started. That's good. I'm curious along those lines, uh, as far as leadership, as companies start to scale, do you, do you see that oftentimes the, the founding or the founding team or the founder isn't able to make the jump to make the company scale? Uh, and do you advise people that way? Or do you, is it usually a growth issue or is it just uh, they're unable, they don't have the skill set. What do you see in, in your world? It, it varies, certainly startup to startup. And I think there's two issues that often get conflated as that happens, right? So one issue is the person just doesn't like that phase of growth, right? There are entrepreneurs I meet with who, like, who they're like, you know what I really like doing is that crazy, ambiguous first couple years of just inventing and figuring it out. And when, it, and when the challenges move to uh, a different set of challenges that are no less entrepreneurial, but they're just different, blocking, tackling uh, from a sales and marketing perspective maybe or, or you know, maybe from a product and a, and a sales delivery perspective, maybe it's just like detailed product roadmaps and things like that. It may make sense for that person to, to move on because they're just not passionate about, about doing that kind of work. Uh, on the other hand, right, you also have people who maybe who want to be part of that that rocket ship for the long haul, but maybe they want to shift into a different role because, you know, maybe they started as a CEO because the most important thing was building the right product. And now the most important thing is executing a sales and marketing plan. And that just may not be what they're wired about. 
There also are people who just want to do this for a long time. And some of our greatest companies in the Berkshire portfolio, like the founder's been there from day one to today, and that works as well. So I think there is no one size fits all to this. But, but in terms of people moving on, I think it's each of those first two issues I mentioned, either one, you're not interested in this stage of a company's growth, or two, the things that you are interested in doing, there might be a great role for you in the company, but it may not be the, the same title or job that you started with. That's good. So at Carnegie Mellon, you're around some of the world's greatest thinkers. Everyone's dreaming big. Everyone thinks they can change the world. Everyone thinks they can build the next Google or Uber, et cetera. Um, I love when in your book, at one point you quoted Larry Page and he said, it turns out most people haven't been educated in moonshot thinking. For those yes. who, who aren't at, at Carnegie Mellon, et cetera, um, what advice do you have for, for just the, the average Joe out there listening saying, hey, I have ideas, but I really don't think I could change the world. What advice do you have for them for thinking big? Yeah. So so, and this was this is part of the reason that um, early on we talk about understanding how big the opportunity is that you're focusing on. To me, I try really hard in the book, talking to people, working with people, to avoid absolute numbers on how big does something need to be to be big enough for you or your idea. But I think what is often lost on people is it's often not that much more work to shoot for something much more significant than you're targeting, right? And I think that's actually part of the genius of Google, they've realized that they can make the same investments in R&D for these what they call moonshots as, they w- as maybe another company would make for more incremental innovation. And yet the return is very asymmetric, right? When you do innovation across the board, the great thing about innovation is you can lose up to the amount of time and money you invest into a given idea, but the upside is uncapped, Right. And so I think Google, with their Moonshot program, uh, which interestingly, I don't know um, what percentage of your, your audience is local, but many of the people who are from the Pittsburgh area may remember Astro Teller. Um, Astro was the founder of Body Media and now runs a lot of the Moonshot projects for Google. He was a PhD at Carnegie Mellon and then started Body Media here in Pittsburgh and then ultimately uh, moved to the West Coast to run a variety of their Moonshot projects. Um, but I think the great thing about that strategy for Google is that they, they really get the asymmetry to it. So they're like, okay, if we're going to invest X into startups, let's make sure that the, the upside outcome is as high as possible, right? And I try to avoid saying to any person, okay, this is how significant something needs to be to be meaningful enough for your time. But I do want you to think about like, okay, if one investment of time has a return of X and the other has an investment return of 5X, it may very well be worth you, if it's the same amount of work to do either of them, it's probably a better use of your time to think about that 5X opportunity. That's good. I want to talk a little bit about feedback and, uh, and way people can get feedback, ways people can get feedback on their dreams. Yep. So you said things in the book, there's no substitute for customer feedback. The most right. valuable thing someone can do is provide frank feedback. Uh, you said all feedback is a gift. Uh, I thought in our class, you had some really creative ways that you make your class get feedback. Can you just share yep. and also talk about, you know, how can people get over the fear of, of bad feedback? Because I think that's what holds us back a lot. Yeah. So, so it's interesting um, and this is probably going to sound like like a, a professor and investor statement, but like the thing I find fascinating about human behavior is that people think they're being nice to you by telling you that your idea is good, when in fact, telling you your idea is good if they think it's bad is actually one of the nastiest things someone can do to you, right? Because each of us get 24 hours a day to invest in whatever we want. And continuing to invest that time into terrible ideas is the it's the one completely perishable resource. Right? You can't buy more of that time. And yet 
people have just, we've been conditioned over the years, sort of the societal norm response when someone says, hey, what do you think about this? Is to try to find the nice thing you can say about it, right? When in fact, what the nice thing you would actually do to them is tell them like, hey, that idea is terrible. You seem really smart. You should work on something else, right? That's the, that's the sort of give and take that, um, that I think people just don't appreciate. And so given that people think they're being nice by telling you that your idea is good, even though telling your idea is nice is actually terrible, you've got to make it much, much easier for them to give you that feedback. And there's a variety of different techniques to do this. Um, one of them is thinking about how you actually conduct the interviews. So at, at one phase of getting this feedback on your ideas, it's typical to go out and actually interview people about it. And one of the things I've found there is that often when running those interviews, entrepreneurs will spend a lot of time talking about their solution, not the customer's problem. And the reality is it's much easier for someone to say, I don't have that problem than them to say, oh, that solution is uninteresting to me. The other thing that you can do, um, and actually it's something that I've, uh, that is way more, comp- way more popular in media and entertainment, um, but I think has lots of roles in startup feedback as well, is actually show people storyboards, right? So a storyboard shows you what, and instead of a storyboard for like a movie, a storyboard for an innovative idea is showing you what the world looks like before, during, and after using your innovative solution and sort of like holding a mirror up to the person and saying, hey, does this storyboard look like you? And the nice thing about storyboards are it, it has the same thing of making you talk about your problems instead of their solutions to the person you're interviewing. But the other thing that's interesting is people don't feel like you've invested months of your time into building a storyboard. If, it, if you show them a finished product, right, and they think, oh my gosh, this looks a really bright guy. I bet he spent like <laughs> six months working on this. I better tell him it's a good idea, right? Whereas if you show them a storyboard, they're like, okay, that probably took him a couple of days. It's a little safer to give that kind of feedback. So there's that. There's a, there are a number of other techniques as well, but those are a couple of highlights to sort of getting this frank feedback. And the other thing is just making it safe for people, right? Mm-hmm. So to the extent you can, just, just really trying to be, make it a safe environment for them to give you that, that kind of feedback. Yeah. Just in your experience, what, along those lines, what have you learned about getting rejected and, and maybe even potential failure? You know, I, I know oftentimes, you know, you have this great idea, you think it's going to change the world. You go out, you pitch it, you get feedback that people say, hey, that's the worst yeah. idea I've ever heard. Uh, how can you stop people from just getting paralyzed and just giving up and saying, I'm, I'm not even going to try this whole entrepreneur thing. I'm going to go work wherever. Yeah. So I think it's, it's understanding why you're getting the feedback you're getting as well. So another thing I would say about entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs need to be often contrarian and right when doing high growth entrepreneurship, right? Because if the solution was completely obvious, then lots of other people would be working on it as well. So, and, and I guess the other related point to that is customers are actually not that great at telling. So all feedback is a gift, but feedback in terms of what people's problems are, not what necessarily the solution to that is. One of the things people ask me all the time is like, well, how do you reconcile this go get lots of feedback versus, you know, if you asked people what they wanted, you know, I think that's the Henry Ford quote. If you ask people what they wanted, they t- told you a faster horse, right? Like people just don't always know really what they want, but they do know what their problems are. They do know that, man, it takes me too long to go from one location to another, things like that. Um, but as you're, as you're sort of going out there, uh, getting that, right, you need to understand the feedback you're getting. And that's, again, again, I think why it's helpful to, in interviews or, or showing people storyboards, to really try to break the reactions they're giving you, both into reactions on the problem you're solving for them versus the solution you're delivering to them. Yeah. So one thing you talked about uh, scaling in the book is building high-performing teams and yep. how important that is. Can you talk about some of the char- characteristics of high-performing teams and really how do you identify people for those teams uh, and hopefully not make mistakes? 
Yeah. So, and this was the, and I say high performing teams was a really interesting one, right? Because I know people at both of these, at the succeeded and failed startups that we looked at in our, at our book and, and, uh, and the research, right. And, and the thing I really wanted to avoid was saying, uh, well, there were smart people at the successful companies and not at the other. The truth is there's really smart people at both of these things or both of these companies that we looked at it across each of the pairs. But I think what you, what you started to see was that, that the processes that they went through, and some of this comes back to just um, understanding the sort of underlying processes that drive the results that we're talking about, right? The processes were different. So some things that, that really jumped out is that um, the interview processes themselves, where you actually were interviewing the person, right, tryouts trump interviews. Right? The idea of actually trying to make the interview as close to what the person's real world experience will be like as possible is much better than me trying to figure out if the other person's credentialed the right way or smart enough. Right. And, and actually we landed on this pretty early as we were looking at the, this, once we, once we got comfortable focusing on the process, we landed on it really early. And, um, one of the companies, which we didn't do by pair, but we did a sort of a sanity check on what we were seeing in these 10 cases was Google. And I kept saying like, well, I mean, and a lot of my students have been through the Google interview process. Like we can't put that in there because Google is notorious for these, you know, how many ping pong balls can you fit in a school bus? Why are manhole covers round type right? these sort of McKinsey S style uh, interview questions. Right. And, and as this debate was ensuing between me and some of the students, right. Google's HR director came out with an article where he basically admitted that none of those questions and the, the, the score candidates did on those sort of brain teasers were not predictive at all in terms of actually high performance or not. And I think part of the thing that Google has going for it that we have to acknowledge is it is harder to get a job at Google than it is to get into Harvard. And so with that flow into the top of your funnel, right, you, you, like, you have a really good chance of landing on high performers just based on that. At the earlier stages, I think the, that leads to the, another really, really important point, which is that recruiting should be driven by the people in charge, not by the HR function. Doesn't mean that the HR function can't be helpful in doing a lot of the work. They absolutely can. But at the end of the day, you know, it's often the CEO or the general manager who's the person who's really intimately involved in the recruiting and selection process of those candidates. Right? And in some of the cases we looked at, there were extreme examples of this. So, so obviously, uh, just to put a bow around the Google example, right? many people know that Larry Page still reviews every uh, candidate before they get a job offer. He doesn't interview them, but he actually reviews a uh, summary of that candidate's interviews, the profile, all that stuff before the person ultimately gets an offer or not. Uh, a company that we looked at that I think is just fascinating, they were in our study, but they're just a fascinating organization as it relates to, to managing and creating a high-performing uh, culture and team is a, is a group of, of folks uh, called Automatic, which is probably better known by people on the internet as WordPress. So this is the for-profit entity that, that has most to do with the creation of, of the blogging platform, WordPress, right? So 20% of the internet today is run on top of WordPress uh, content servers. And um, these are the guys who create it. And WordPress or Automatic is just a fascinating company along a lot of dimensions. How they structure their teams, how they manage their people, really, really interesting company. They work completely distributed, and the teams get together a couple times a year face-to-face. Uh, but more on more in like a retreat setting than going to to an office. Automatic does have a small office in San Francisco, but like nobody goes there, including the CEO. 
Um, and the interesting thing about Automatic is that the CEO there is involved in the front and the back end of the interview process, right? So he he's often the first person they touch and the last person they touch from from uh, from uh, the interview process. And come back to this concept of tryouts trumping uh, interviews. They actually make everybody who gets a job at Automatic has to spend some number of weeks as a consultant to the firm doing work as close as possible to what they're going to be hired to do. So if you're going to be hired as a programmer, then you actually write code. If you're going to be hired as a salesperson, right, you can't go out and sell WordPress, but you can create PowerPoints and, and work with the team who's going to deliver them, faux deliver them, things like that. If you're in customer service, you're actually answering support tickets. It's a really, really interesting company. There's a, um, there's a great book. If, if Automatic and the, and the company WordPress is an interesting idea, there's a great book called A Year Without Pants. Uh, by, uh, and the, the reference there is, right, everybody works remotely, so you can kind of work whatever you want. It's called A Year Without nice. Pants, and it is a fascinating story of a guy who gets hired, who's a, who's a well-known author and sort of expert in how you manage teams, who spends a year as a product manager inside Automatic, and it's sort of a combination of his memoir of that year working at Automatic, as well as sort of the best practices that he observed as someone who spent a lot of time studying how projects get built. Wow, that's cool. Um, on the on the other end, as opposed to hiring, uh, can you just talk about how people can be high performers? Um, you know, I'm sure everyone, like you said, it's harder to get into Google than Harvard. Um, you invest in a lot of entrepreneurs. What what separates the ones you invest in and the ones you believe in and hire versus the ones who you don't? And and you know, what can someone who's listening to this do to even get noticed by some of these companies or startups that are exciting to be a part of? Yeah, so I think getting getting noticed, right? I would encourage you to like understand the products, right? All that kind of stuff. But in terms of then, like once you get into that role, um, being good at it, I think I think there's a couple of things that that I always encourage folks to do as I spend time with them. Uh, one is is um, not to stop learning, right? So uh, it's shocking to me how few books people read. And I guess this sounds like a curmudgeon author at this point, but I used to say this even before I wrote a book, I swear. Um, <laughs> but like, it's, it's just shocking to me how few books people read every year, right? Like, I'll, you know, I'll be saying with someone, it's like, what's the last great book you read? And they're, they're like, well, a couple of years ago, I, read this. I mean, that's insane, right? The, the thought that you could basically know everything you need to know from work you've done Years into the past, like that's that's a, it's it's illogical given the amount of information being created um, every day today. And the other thing is, um, I think people aren't an, another just observation is I think people aren't quite as good at managing their time as they they think they are. Um, I was uh, on a flight last night and um, ended up sitting in a in a airport waiting for the waiting for this flight to to be ready to depart. It was delayed, and so went to the the restaurant around the corner and was sitting at the bar just sending email and and uh you know just getting stuff done and the guy sitting next to me was also waiting for that flight and he was sitting there like staring at sports center on mute right <laughs> on sports center on mute having a drink which is fine but then we're walking to the gate and uh, you know right around the corner right, and he's like and he's like, man, I am just so busy. I cannot figure out how to get everything done. And I'm thinking to myself, like, well, there were two hours that we were both sitting waiting for the same flight to take off and, and you drank, right? That's what you basically did, right? And I, it's just, you know, people don't, I think, value their time nearly high enough. Right? You know, it's, each minute that we get is a complete gift, but we get to choose how, how we use and invest those. And you know, some of it should be 
used to invest in learning and developing ourselves, and some of it should be used to just going out there and, and getting it at the things that we're committed to doing right now. Yeah. So the last thing uh, I want to ask about the book, and then if you want to mention anything before we go into personal questions, goes right along those lines. Focus. I love uh, the story you talked about with Mark Zuckerberg and how people would come to him and be like, hey, we want to do this. And if it didn't have to do with growth, they wouldn't touch it. And so you see that over and over and over again. How do you maintain that discipline and focus needed uh, no matter what you're doing to be a success? Yeah. So I think it comes back to conviction, right? How convicted are you and what the most important things are? Um, there's another story around this focus and discipline that I think is incredibly powerful. So, so Peter Thiel, when he was running PayPal, uh, and you know, the interesting thing about PayPal uh, as a company, right, is that the early executives at PayPal have gone on to start many of the meaningful companies in Silicon Valley over the last 10 years, right? So founders of YouTube, founder of LinkedIn, uh, there's just the, the sort of uh, PayPal tree, or often joking, they call it the PayPal mafia that is, has sort of perpetuated Silicon Valley, right? But when Peter was running PayPal, he used to have this thing where you could only be focused on one thing, right? And so your yearly performance reviews, they were like, what's the most important thing that you're doing? And he did it for an interesting reason, right? Which is that people will hedge when set up with their KPIs, right? They'll be like, well, here are my three goals for the year. And like one of them's actually a stretch goal. And the other one or two might be like safe things that like you want to make sure you don't go O for three, right? So you, you pick, you pick sort of some middle ground, right? And, and I think the thing that's interesting about that sort of one thing is he'd force them to say, no, 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 no. If you're going to justify your existence at PayPal based on one thing, what's the most important thing you're going to do this year? And I think it brings back this element of conviction. Like you, then you really know what's going to move the needle for my organization or, or for what I'm working on. And I think um, people waste time because they don't, they don't spend the time thinking about that stuff and they don't have the conviction they need to and what, what will really move the needle for them. Yeah. Any other thoughts that you want to leave us with on the book? No, no, this has been, this has been great and, and happy to chat about. Science of Growth. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Sean's book, I've included links in the show notes. You'll also find ways to connect with him at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 96. Uh, and this wasn't the end of our conversation. I actually, we continue our conversation in episode number 97 of the podcast. If you want to learn more from Sean about entrepreneurship and leadership, I encourage you to take a minute and listen to that. And again, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, we're hosting a Pirates game and a tailgate with Sean on Monday, June 20th. We're going to have Chick-fil-A. Sean's going to give a talk on his book. We're giving away 100 copies of his book, and then we're going to go over to the Pirates game and watch it. It's going to be a wonderful evening. The event's sponsored by the Pittsburgh Kids Foundation, and tickets are 10 bucks a person, and you can get them at l3leadership.org forward slash pirates, and we would love to see you there, and you'll get an opportunity to meet Sean as well. I'd like to end with thanking our sponsor, 068, which is a, uh, an incredible company led by my friend Daniel Bull, and they actually uh, start companies with ex-convicts, and it's just incredible the work that they're doing. I really encourage you to just go to their website, 068, all spelled out, dot org. Again, that's 068.org, and you'll be able to watch stories of, of the lives that they've impacted through this. It's just incredible. So check them out. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to it, leave a rating and review. That'll really help us. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate that. And as always, I like to close with a quote. And I read this the other day and I just got so fired up. Brian Houston said this. He said, God promotes the lives of those who promote the lives of others. Again, I'll say, Brian Houston once said, God promotes the lives of those who promotes 
the lives of others. And I absolutely love that. I just want to encourage you, get your eyes off of you and start helping everyone else achieve their dreams and all everything you ever wanted will come to you. Just help other people get what they want. So thanks again for listening to the podcast and being a part of L3 Leadership. My wife and Laura and I appreciate you so much and we'll talk to you next episode. Mm-hmm.